You may be seated. And I'm going to invite you to take out the sermon handout um, on the front here. We're going to have some places for you to take notes on the back. As you know, one of the things we've started this year is adding something we're calling MPG, which stands for Memorize, Pray, and Glorify. And there will be a, a scripture from today's lesson that we're going to encourage you to memorize and to meditate on this week. There will be some things that you can pray over this week that pertain to your life and the application of the message today to it in some ways that in ministry or maybe in your own life, some of the changes, some of the ways that you might be transformed and, and, and put into kind of a daily application of some of the things we're going to be talking about today and in the coming weeks, that would also be a part of the MPG. So we're going to begin with a reading of our text today, which is actually 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Then we're going to pray, and then we'll jump into the message. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we, we stand at the beginning today of a study of this, this wonderful letter that you have brought into our presence and into our lives, into our knowing and being by the hand of our brother Peter, through your spirit, the words that were couched in your heart in all of eternity. And we want to pray, Father, that in, in this study, that we will be humble before you, that we will be modest before you in all that we do. We ask, Father, that you bless us with ears and eyes that are able to discern, and not just discern, but desire to be transformed by these great words into the people that you would have us to be. We are excited, Father, and we ask you to continually remind us of what it is you are doing in your creation today and in us. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, 
You know, it's often said that clothing makes the person, clothing makes the man. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. Clothing doesn't make a person, but it can certainly tell you a lot about what they may do and tell you a lot about them. So what we're going to do this morning is to take a little test and see if you can guess what these people do. You don't know them. At least I don't think you know them. Uh, You don't know them, but let's see if you can guess what it is that they do for a living. Let's look at the first one. What's he do? He's a cowboy. All right, let's look at the next one. Cowboys. <laughs> but I'd like to say cowboys at their best. That's Charlie Waters and Cliff Harris. How about the next one? Baseball player, Jackie Robinson, one of the greatest men to play baseball. How about the next one? Ah, police officer. This is a young woman is a police officer up in Austin, Texas. How about the next one? Rock star, David Gilmore. What band is that? Pink Floyd, well done. This is a church that knows some things. How about the last one? Race car, Lando Norris drives F1. It's an F1 driver. So what we wear does tell us partially our identity. The idea of clothing, though, is even true, and it telling us a little bit about who we are. Our clothing is even true in our faith. Here are some scriptures from Paul's hand and from Peter's hand. Romans chapter 13. Paul says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, for all of you who have been baptized in Christ have what? Clothed yourselves with Christ. Then we go to Colossians chapter 3. Therefore is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. What? Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness humility, gentleness, and patience. And then towards the end of this letter that we're going to begin studying today, 1 Peter, Peter writes, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now obviously Peter is not talking about literal clothing, right? And neither is Paul. He is using the metaphor of clothing to say something, I think, extremely important and profound. And here is the big idea. I want you to write it down. It's going to be up here on the screen. This is the big idea for the sermon this morning. It's this. Who you are on the inside should be as visible, should be as obvious as the clothing you wear on the outside. People should see what's on the inside of you very clearly, just as as visibly and as obviously as the clothing you wear. So the big question then is this. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we together? Well, that was a question that was near and dear to the heart of Peter. He had been a fisherman. It was good work. It was honest work. It was, it was hard work. But then one day there was a carpenter turned rabbi by the name of Jesus who called Peter while he was out in a boat to follow him. And Peter did just that. Peter obeyed. And Peter dedicated all he had and all that he was to Jesus. He spent three years following him about Israel. And he was there during all of the miracles. He saw the miracles as they were performed. He was there when Jesus walked on the water and actually walked on the water himself. He saw people raised from the dead. He saw people healed. He was there for the teachings. He heard over and over and over again, Jesus talk about this is what the kingdom of God is like. And he was there for all of the controversy. When those Pharisees and the Sadducees and others would try to trap him, Peter saw wondrous things. Those three years of walking with the Christ. But he also saw some awful things. And then one day he saw the worst of them all. 
And that was when Jesus was crucified and Peter's world was turned upside down. And he was one of the first, three days later, to see Jesus resurrected, saw him with his own eyes. But by then the world had become a confusing and a bewildering place for Peter. Could you imagine just standing on the very first day of realizing that you're standing in a brand new world because of the resurrection of Jesus? But there are some things that have happened, some things that he's not proud of. And he goes home. He goes back up to North Galilee, to the Galilee Sea. And he tries to go back to fishing, and yet he's no longer the old fisherman hauling in the nets of fish. He is now going to represent the kingdom of God to the world around him. And now by the time it gets to when he writes this letter, he's some decades older. He's seen the kingdom of God spread far beyond the borders of Israel, farther than his imagination would ever take him. And his world is so much larger now, but his days are fewer and the end is near. And he remembers as if it were yesterday the words that Jesus had said to him on that beach in John 21, that day when he tried to go back to fishing. And Jesus said, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. And then he said one more time to Peter, follow me, Peter, follow me. And that's what he did. And now as an old shepherd, he's instructing the flocks throughout the world and through the ages to come as to who they are as 1 Peter chapter 1, very first verse, they are strangers in the world. What does it mean to be a stranger? Well, as somebody who has been a stranger in a foreign country, it means that you're a stranger because you're doing some things that seem culturally strange. And so there is a part of of being a stranger that is not about being sinister, but it's about being different. In fact, Peter is going to write in the fourth chapter of the same letter, he's going to write to these strangers and say, hey, the people around you think that it's strange that you do not join in with them in the behavior that they have chosen. And so what Peter is going to do in this letter, he wants these disciples of Jesus to know whom he's writing. He wants them to understand that they will not be identified in the normal ways that the people in these provinces would recognize. And so, although he says so much in those first nine verses that I just read, we're going to look at four things that mark the life of a stranger. And the first is God chosen. We're all God chosen. If you have have given your trust, your faith, your belief, your love to the Christ, you're you're chosen by God. And in verse 2, he talks about the strangers who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The big question is this, what does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be chosen? Well, as as you know, next month, April, NFL is going to hold its draft. What happens in the NFL draft? Well, teams take turns choosing players from the college rank to create a team that they hope will win championships. And how the choosing takes place is teams begin to consider what positions need to be filled and then begin considering what players can fill that need. In other words, each player that is chosen through the rounds of the draft, each of those players chosen are chosen with a purpose in mind. Now, we do that all the time. I Think about street football. Growing up, we played a lot of street football. Two guys, usually the best players, the best, best 
best athletes. They're the ones that are chosen to be captains. They stand on one side of the street and all the other guys stand on the other side of the street. And one by one, each guy then chooses the guy with purpose. It may be, he's my best friend and I want him on my team. Or it may be, my brother and I want him on the team because my father will kill me if I don't choose him. Or it may be the fastest, or it may be the strongest, or it may be the tallest or the biggest. But whatever it is, they're chosen with purpose. Now to be chosen by God implies that a purpose has been given to disciples of Jesus. So what is that purpose? A purpose is this. You can write it down. Christians become signposts to a new reality and a new world. Christians become signposts to a new reality into a new world. That new reality is what a human being looks like in Christ through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Christ. That's verse 2. And then the new world is one that comes into being through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So through God's indwelling Spirit in humans on the one hand, and through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the other, and His resurrection, God has brought a new reality into the status quo experience of fallenness and lostness in the world. We reflect, as His chosen, we reflect God back into the world. We are chosen with a purpose. So my question, let me ask two questions. Is God's purpose for your life seen in the way that you conduct yourself every day? And the second question is this. Do you seem strange to the people around you? Well, there's a second one. Not only are we God chosen, but we are God praising. One of the best days of my life also exists one of the greatest Absher controversies. Ellen and I went out on our first date. I couldn't believe that someone like her would even consider going out with somebody like me, a guy like me. She had grown up the daughter of missionaries in Africa. Her whole life had been surrounded by kingdom of God business. And when it came to being a disciple of Jesus, she was the real deal and still is. So at the end of our first date, I take her back to the dorm. And I was just going to shake hands and say, you know, thanks for everything. And that's when she stepped forward and planted a kiss on my lips. Now, to be fair, there exist two versions here. <laughs> there is her version, and then there's the truth. <laughs> I, listen, don't ask me to tell you what really happened that night. <laughs> but no, it was a great night. But it was just a great moment when I realized that she felt something special for me. And I went back to the dorm that night, and the guy said, hey, hey, how'd it go? Did you have a good time? What happened? And I could not say enough nice things about her. God praising. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the best way for me to talk about Ellen? How nice she is, how wonderful she is, how beautiful she is on that first date, that second date, and the third date. What is the best way to talk about God? Praise. Praise is the best way to talk about God, to talk about how God is great and how great His works are. 
The best way, write this down on your outline, the best way to talk about God is praise. How do you talk about God every day? You're chosen, you have a purpose, you're reflecting God back into the creation. How is your God speak? How is your God praising? Peter's going to return to this in the very next chapter. In chapter 2, he says, you're a chosen people. There's that chosen again. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may, what, church? Say it louder. Declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. And Peter just lists a couple of things that makes God praiseworthy right here. He's going to talk about more in the rest of this book. But it's through God's mercy that He makes us His children through a new birth. It doesn't matter where you're from or what you look like, the color of your skin, how much money you have, how educated you are, how tall you are, male or female or whatever. God, through His mercy, is giving you through a new birth the opportunity to be a part of His family, to be His son, to be His daughter. And as His children, there is an inheritance that will never be lost. And, you know, during this time that Peter is writing, there are obviously some hard things that are going on with, with these churches in this area. And one of the things that you worry about is, okay, it's great to know that I'm a kiddo. It, it, it's great to know that I'm, I'm part of the family. It's great to know that somewhere down the line in heaven, kept for me, safe, 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 is going to be this inheritance. But what about today? We are shielded, he says, by his power until we find ourselves standing on the last and best day of this world in the complete salvation of our souls. He makes you his kid. The, the inheritance is never lost. But guess what else is never lost? It's you. God will never lose you. God will never lose you. Think about this big world and the number of people, and it's all over the place. It's gigantic. And sometimes it's really easy in, in the midst of all of the trees to forget that there is, there is a, you know, a force that we're in. It's just... We, we become so densely packed in with people that sometimes we go, how is God going to notice me from the guy next to me? He will never lose you, not in this big world. He notices you. He knows what you're going through. He notices you. He will not lose you when things are not going great and you're having a terrible day. And He will be with you and you are not lost, even when it looks like you are losing by the world's perspective. You're His child. And what he's trying to say to this early church, and he says to us, is that there are going to be some days when being a Christian is going to be tough, and it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And there are going to be days when you're wondering whether or not God even has his eyes on you because it's so tough. Well, guess what? He will never lose you. He will never lose you. And so in verse 6, it's in this that we greatly rejoice. We're God chosen, we're God praising, and we're God shining. To be a stranger is to not be at home. To, to be a stranger is to live a life and you know it in a place that you would not call home. And the sign that we are not home yet is the presence of suffering, the presence of grief, the presence of pain and trouble. And this is a theme that Peter's going to return to, but he touches on it, introduces it here, and he says all of these trials in verse 7, these have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor 
when Jesus is revealed. He's saying that the greatness of God shines out when His people hold firm to Him, even in trials. Now we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. But here's what I want you to write down on your outline. The greatness of our faith, the beauty of our hope, and the presence of God overwhelms suffering. Do you believe that? The greatness of our faith, the beauty of our hope, the presence of God Himself overwhelms suffering. And then the last thing we'll talk about this morning is God loving. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Peter writes, verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, say it with me, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As disciples of Jesus, we don't merely believe in God. We also love Him. We also love Him. You know, on that day that Peter tried to go back to fishing, it was not the best of his days. He had earlier, he had denied Jesus three times. Even though he had been in sort of this cavalier way, certain that he would never do that, I'll die with you. But Jesus had said to him, no, you'll deny me three times. Before the end of the day, before the cock crew. And know this, Peter, that Satan has asked to sift you. But I have but I've prayed for you. And he did, as you know. And now Jesus was resurrected. And everything Jesus had said about the kingdom of God, the salvation, the redemption, the renewal of all things, love and forgiveness made his denials of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, all the worse. And now here is Jesus on the bank making breakfast for his friends. They're out fishing. It's hard work. He knows they're going to be hungry. They'll need a good breakfast. And they're sitting there. And it's awkward. Not on Jesus' part. But Peter just feels awkward. And Jesus looks at Peter and he asks him, Do you love me? Do you love me? And he asks it three times so that the one who had said, I don't know him three times, can say, I love you three times. I mean, wouldn't you just give just about everything to be able to look Jesus in the eye and, and just say, I love you. Peter got that chance. And he never forgot that moment. I mean, would you? Would you forget being in the presence of Jesus and denying and denying and denying and then seeing that everything that he said, as hard as it was to believe, as hard as it was to get your arms and your mind around, 
that it was all true, that Jesus predicted his death, his burial, his resurrection, and he pulled it off, and you had denied it, denied him, had denied your Savior, had denied your friend. And now the friend's getting you, giving you an opportunity to say, I love you, I love you. It's a moment of inexpressible and glorious joy in the life of Peter to say, I love you. And he's telling the the church, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Write this down on your outline. We strive to love Him because of the way He loves us. We strive to love Him because of the way that He loves us. You know how love in a marriage grows? Love in a marriage grows when somebody realizes somewhere down, let's say the young man, the young man realizes somewhere down the road that his wife chooses him and embraces him, and forgives him, and serves him, and celebrates him, and knows him, and still chooses him, and even says, I love you, and he knows it's true because of the way that she is, the way that she serves, and celebrates him, and takes care of him, and the way that she looks at him, and touches him, and holds his hand. And if this cat is worth his salt, and he realizes that there is somebody in the world who knows him better than anybody else in the world and is saying, I love you. He will not toss that to the ground. He will not kick it to the curb. He will treasure it in his heart in such a way that it creates that same love for her. And and that's what happens. That's what happens in our faith, church. You know, we, we, we get going so fast. We get going so fast, and we're just moving and moving and moving. We have so many things to do. And uh, to quote Dallas Wheeler, we have to ruthlessly eradicate hurry from our life because it is in the contemplating, the considering, the meditating on, the picturing in our mind's eye, the imagining of what this love is. When we begin to think about the cross, when we begin to think about his love, his sacrifice, why he stayed on the cross, why he even did it in the first place, and we begin to realize that he knows us as well as we know ourselves, if not better. And he still died on the cross. Paul would say while we were still enemies, while we were still alienated, that's what he did. He died for you, and he died for you, and he died for you, and he died for me. And when we think about what that all means in terms of our present and who we're becoming in the future, what we will be in our past, all of that being forgotten and forgiven and and, and God throwing that behind him in places where he can't see anymore, there is just something that takes a hold of our hearts. And it's not enough to believe in him. You just want to say, I love you. I love you. I love you, Lord, for everything that I can see and everything that I can't see that you have done for me. And that's when things really begin to change in the kingdom of God in whatever community it finds itself. It becomes a place that begins to shine and it begins, it's a loving place and and it's a place that exhibits what the kingdom of God is like. And this is what it looks, to love God 
is what it looks like to live as a stranger in the world. And that's who we are. And here's the task in the coming days. To let your life preach as loud as your words. To let your life preach as loud as your words. We're going to sing a song right now. Some shepherds will be down here at the front. If there are ways that we could minister to you this morning, pray for you, encourage you, counsel you, whatever it might be, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.